With all the attention focused on Greece's debt problem, the United States has its own debt problem here at home. Many of our states and cities are on the verge of bankruptcies. Cities such as Stockton, California, and Detroit, Michigan already have declared bankruptcy among the few. The one crisis that no one is talking about is the over $3 trillion in unfunded pension obligations across the country that have to be met. Now, who's going to pay for this, and how did we get into this mess in the first place? On this podcast, we will discuss how we got into the situation and what impact this will have on the U.S. economy. The purpose of this podcast on Ubaldi Reports is to let the public know of the looming crisis in their states and cities of billions of dollars in unfunded pension obligations that have to be paid. This unfunded pension obligation has already shaken the financial budgets of cities such as Chicago and states like Illinois, California, New York, New Jersey, and other states across America. On this podcast, we will be speaking with Lance Christensen, who is a senior policy advisor for the California State Senate. Prior to this, Lance was the director of the Reason Foundation's Pension Reform Project, dealing with state and national pension issues. Now, let's welcome Lance Christensen. How's it going, Lance? It's going great, John. Uh, thanks for having me on. Hey, it's a pleasure having you on this show, and it's it's really a pleasure to to really put what's fact and what's fiction re, um, regarding the unfunded pension obligation across our country. Now, the first thing to get started, we've listened for the last few weeks about the crisis in Greece, but we have our own debt crisis with Puerto Rico. We're seeing the problems with Chicago and the various various states and cities across the country are facing a Greek-like situation. Now, what caused this problem in the first place with unfunded pension liabilities? Well, it started out, I think, as a decent idea to make sure that people had money in retirement. For most of the history of civilization, there's been some discussion about how we take people take care of people after they uh, are not useful in the workforce or when they're aged or um, otherwise not able to work like they used to. And it used to be that families would generally take care of that, but there's been systems where there's been some sort of pension payments in the past. But ever since the advent of Social Security in the United States, a lot of states took it upon themselves to create separate pension programs, uh, largely defined benefit uh, programs that would be able to pay for a lot of their workers in the workforce. Um, when there was a stall in or a, a public policy change in not allowing people to get higher raises or increased salaries back uh, around the early part of the 20th century, they often supplemented that with pension um, programs. And so both in the private and in the public sector, it was very popular for some time. However, uh, it requires that you set aside a large amount of money that your investments return a high amount of resources and that the people you are taking care of, you project you know, basically their lifespan correctly and make good assumptions. And as the private sector went forward and saw this just was not workable, places like UPS or United <clears throat> Airlines, 
they found that this is no longer tenable. And so over a period of years, um, they divested largely, the private sector divested themselves of these. Now, there are still defined benefit programs within the United States, but they're lower in number to those in the public sector, where a lot of these were driven by elected officials who decided whether they had um, the ability to move forward on uh, largely influencing constituencies and in doing so, increase the cost through a defined benefit program on the tax taxpayer. And because the public and the private sectors largely invest their monies in the same places, uh, there's not some special market for public sector employees, so, you know, Wall Street, real estate, other things like that. Um, they were getting largely the same returns. The pro the difference, which ends up being the problem, is a lot of these elected officials to make promises for which they didn't have to keep years down the line when they weren't in office anymore. And they knew that the tax dollar or the taxpayer would always be there to back up whatever difference needed to be made up. So in doing that, for the last few decades, um, there have been times of serious economic trouble and have caused a lot of states and cities throughout the country to start reevaluating their position. And Several places have moved from a defined benefit where the, the, the benefit is guaranteed at the end, no matter what the cost, to a defined contribution where you put in a certain amount of money and in the end you hope your investments work out well, much like a uh, 401k system, though a little different. Now, first of all, just from my <clears throat> listener standpoint, could you explain just a little bit more what is a defined benefit? That means is that something where the, the government puts money in for the pension fund and if it doesn't meet its expectation. That means the taxpayers or the state or municipality has to backfill the shortfall? Yes. Yeah, so defined benefits is just that. You define the benefit you're going to receive after you retire for a period of years. And what they'll do is they'll use actuaries to say, okay, we uh, presume in the workforce um, for a particular governmental entity that they're going to have this many workers making this much money and working for this long. When they retire, they're going to get a certain percentage of their salary, usually based upon the, the years worked, and they'll get that for basically the rest of their lives. And if they're married, uh, there's usually some sort of survivor benefit if the uh, primary worker dies. Um, it may not be the full freight, but it's probably half or a quarter of whatever they were making. So a lot of these pension benefits can go on for many years. Now, a defined contribution, like I said before, it's much like a 401k type system where you invest and you hope that over the years the compound interest can make way for a decent retirement or an essay and you do that with various risk strategies based upon where you are in your life and then at one point okay. in time you'll draw down on that investment after you retire but it's not a guaranteed amount of money um, so that's the difference between the two now but you also mentioned earlier because we keep hearing about these egregious uh, pension systems. And I've looked at California. We're seeing what happened in Chicago and the various states across the, uh, the country where politicians who write the contracts for the public employees unions overpromised and gave out really generous benefits without having that sustainable over time. Is that more or less how we really got into this? Was like over generous benefits? I think to a certain extent, that's a piece of the pie. Um, I think it's the most obvious one for a lot of people. And it's hard when you see public sector workers making, you know, six figure salaries and retire or in 
uh, while working their job. And then often, not often, but uh, a lot of times more money after they retire. And you'll see those stories and those are pretty effective about kind of raising the public perception that public employees are getting more than they should. Now, there's a vast majority of public employees like teachers or you know, just regular workers that may get a pension. It may not be um, a lot. They may not retire with a, a huge salary. And, you know, for those sorts of things, that's not usually a problem. If we're going to guarantee or promise a pension package, then we should pay it. Um, the problem is when people use or abuse rules to go back in and spike their pay, um, use specialty pay or things like that to to, to get more money in retirement than they otherwise should have when they cash in uh, sick or vacation time. Um, so there's a lot of different ways that they can manipulate the system, and that's not fair. In California, um, back about 15 years ago, they passed a bill that basically um, turned around and allowed a, uh, a buy-in of previous um, pension uh, obligations that increased their benefit, and they had not paid for it. And that so I think like that's the, the biggest part problem. Yeah, that was in 1999. I think that was by Governor Gray Davis. Yeah, SB 400. And pretty much every member of the legislature uh, voted on the bill. There was a few that didn't. But um, when they did that, CalPERS and CalSTRS and some of the others that are big pension systems in California didn't give a very thorough analysis of what that would impact the state. And as you look at it now, it's had severe impacts going forward. Well, because we're and the reason I was kind of getting into this subject matter, because what happened in Greece, but then we saw what happened, I think about a week or so with Chicago, they had to fund their teachers um, retirement system with a big lump sum. But now they don't know how they're going to pay for next year. And I think the city of Chicago is, you know, like 20 billion dollars in debt. And and it's just they're having a hard time coming up with this. Well, think about it. If you're a, a teacher. And a lot of teachers I know, they start young and they work for many years. Um, it's not, you know, when you're in the classroom, it's a job that we revere generally and, and appreciate the education of our children. And they, they work for some time. They may or may not make a lot of money depending on what you work. But at the end of that, they should be guaranteed that they're going to get the pension they were promised. And the problem we're facing now is a lot of these other promises that we've made, whether they be in the teacher systems or other places, um, they've not been able to make the investments or, which is even worse, they've not made the payments at the annually required contributions to these pension systems, which made the hole bigger and bigger and bigger, which is one of the problems that uh, a lot of these big municipalities face. They just simply never made the full payment and now they're paying for it. Well, I, I know that's what happened. Like I know certain aspects happened in New Jersey, Chicago. They, de- they either delayed the payments or didn't make the payments entirely. And now things are coming up and coming due. Correct. And as interest compounds both ways, the longer you forestall a payment, the bigger the gap it will be. Now, did when they, like you're talking from CalPERS from where you're at and then CalSTRS, did some of these investment managers make over generous analysis that they would get? Like I know Bloomberg News came out with something today stating that the returns are going to be like 4%, maybe 5 when the investment arm of them said they were going to get like 7%, which was really over generous. A lot of uh, pension systems throughout the country depend on higher return rates. And often, 
assume rates anywhere from seven, seven and a half, eight, eight and a half percent. And those are all unrealistic, especially if you're, you know, uh, year after year after year, you have to expect you're going to have some high years and you have to expect you're going to have some low years. Um, take CalPERS, for example, last year they had a high year. They expected CalPERS, I think, seven and a half percent. They got 18.4. But this year, uh, as the data came out just a few days ago, they got 2.4%. And that's well under the seven and a half percent they were expecting. And if you take a 10-year a uh, geometric average of that, because you don't want to go too far back because your investment patterns and the economy is so much different 20 years ago. But if you go 10 years back and get a pretty decent look, it's a 6.17% average. Um, that's be significantly below the seven and a half that you're expecting. And when you continue to underfund your pensions based upon a, a higher expected uh, rate, you're going to underfund the system. Now, where have the courts come out on that. I know there was a case in Illinois where they were going to you know, cut back on some of the pension um, obligations to the public employees. And I think a federal court or a federal judge says, no, you can't do that. You have to fund these pensions. So where have the courts come out nationally or even maybe like for your state statewide? How have they ruled on these unfunded pension obligations and who's supposed to pay or come up with this, uh, this funding? Generally, they follow the pattern of protecting the public pension payments and benefits. Um, it, it's kind of different wherever you are. There's generally, at least in California and many other states, that adopt the same kind of premises, not based necessarily on their constitution, but upon case law and decisions through the courts, is that if you've made a promise for a benefit to a public employee, that that benefit basically is, is in perpetuity. You, in other words, you can only ratchet up, you can't ratchet down. And I think for a lot of um, systems, that really restricts their ability to change um, or adjust their investment patterns based upon maybe lower expected rates of return or lower yields. And so they're, they're handicapped in, in that way. Um, so in the private sector, the private sector by law is allowed to go and readjust. But in the public sector, it's not under the, the, the federal law and then a lot of the state constitutional provisions. And that in Illinois, as you brought up earlier, was one of those places where the court said, basically, you promise this money, it's in the Constitution, so you can't take it back, which handicaps the ability um, for anybody in the legislature or the governor to really make an impact on changing the system. So basically, the courts have said, you promised the public employees, this is the pension they're going to get. Now, whether you funded it or not, you're going to have to fund, find a way to come up with the money to make those payments. Yes. Okay. Now, the one big question, I know you mentioned, touched on this earlier that I keep getting asked because my brother is a, a public employee up in the, the, the North, uh, Pacific Northeast or North Northwest. And you always hear about these abuses, like we mentioned earlier, about these high salaries and these high benefits. But what do you say with um, employees who, who keep saying, I don't receive that? I mean, what is kind of fact and what is fiction regarding that statement? Well, it just depends on where you are, what kind of job you get, right? If you're working a regular job, um, perhaps you're, you know, um, a, uh, you deal in some sort of administrative capacity or whatever, you're probably not making a huge salary. 
Um, is it comparable to the the market rate of that salary? If, say you're a secretary in, in a government office, um, probably not. In fact, you're probably making either at least as much, if not more, than the private sector. But putting that aside, you're probably not making a lot of money. And if you only work, you know, say 10, 15, 20 years, even at one and a half or two percent, that you're not going to make a huge amount in retirement. Um, now, if you're a firefighter and are working for a period of, say, you start at 20 or 23 years old, maybe you're 25, we'll just say 25, you work 20 years, there are places where you get 3%. Um, and if it's you know a period of 30 years, 3% at 30 years, you retire at 55 with 90% of your salary. Uh, say you got some decent uh, advancements and promotions within that time. Say you had um, some overtime you hadn't cashed out. That's where you see some of these um, places where people are able to use their their system to get more money than otherwise they would have otherwise received. And so I think that's part of the concern there. Okay. Um, but you also have to consider too. A lot of people will say, "Well, if you average out the systems, it's only you know." I've seen the numbers anywhere from nineteen to twenty-eight thousand dollars a year is the average. Well, yeah, if you throw in every single person into that system, including those that are part-time or seasonal workers or um, make very little versus a, a decent size of government employees, which make, at least in some states, California included, or make a decent amount of money, then it will skew the results low. But if you cut out all the people who work part-time or, um, uh, or seasonally, you generally are th- looking anywhere from thirty-five dollars to $45,000 a year in retirement. Now, is that a huge amount of money? No, but that's averaging in everything, and that can be really impactful in the end. Now, where do the uh, the unions come in on this? Because right now, I know the public employees unions are the largest unions where before it used to be the private sector unions. Where do the unions come in on this? Because they seem to be fighting pretty heavily for this, you know, making sure payments are made and taking care of the public employees. I think a lot of them uh, understand that if they want to perpetuate their jobs for any length of time, they've got to have a system that's sustainable. And in fact, I wouldn't disagree. Again, if we make promises for public employees, we should keep them. However, a lot of their positions within the unions are um, predicated upon the ability for them to bring back additional benefits, whether it be pay or, you know, uh, health insurance or other things um, back to their employer right, and back to their employees, their membership. And since a lot of budgets are constricted, one of the easiest things to do is to promise more in pension pay years down the road when you're not there in office or when you're not negotiating anymore um, that you can promise years on the road. And in the meantime, uh, hope that a public employee pension um, actuary or system or board, whoever decides upon the rate, will assume a higher rate of return so that the contributions aren't significantly better than they would have otherwise been. And so that's been a lot of the problem. I think, though, if, if public employees were smart and unions were smart, they would consider the fact that we're in a place now where we simply can't pay this money anymore. It's just it's not there. And in fact, uh, Steve Eide over at the uh, Manhattan Institute did a fantastic report where he looked at, at the crowd out effect and uh, analyzed what sort of budget uh, considerations have to be made for those places that decide that um, they can't 
fund things because of their higher pension costs. And so you're asking people, do you want more uh, police protection or do you want to pay higher pension rates? Do you want your sidewalks and streets filled and paved and fixed? Or do you want to pay higher pension rates? Do you want your library hours closed and your parks shut down? Or do you want to pay higher pension costs? These are decisions they have to make. They have a finite amount of money, limited resources. And so they're making the best decisions they can, keeping the promises they made to public employees. But going forward, we have to ask ourselves if reform is appropriate so that future workers will get a retirement of some sort, but it's not all um, left upon by the responsibility of the taxpayer to fill in the gaps where investment projections fall short. It's almost akin to like during the financial crisis or prior to it, where families went out and got, let's say, a bigger home than they could actually afford. And if there was any change in their financial situation, they were now locked in to a mortgage. And the only thing they could cut is all these other programs. But at some point, you go broke and there's nobody backfilling them. Yep, basically. Okay, now with that, because it seems like lawmakers in the past, maybe some who are still there, gave these very lucrative benefits out. Now they have to figure out how they're going to pay for it. Well, what have, the, what have the cities and states tried to do to fix this problem? There's been lots of different reforms. Um, at Reason Foundation, they have a great pension reform project going on, again, like you said before, which I was affiliated with and directed for a couple of years, where they have gone through and done several case studies of uh, Rhode Island, Alaska, Michigan, uh, and in the cities, San Diego, San Jose, here in California. And what a lot, a lot of the changes that have been made um, are moving from a defined benefit system to either a defined contribution, a, um, a hybrid defined contribution, defined benefit system, or a cash balance system like they've done, they've done in uh, Kentucky. And in some of these places, the idea is that you want to get the employees to um, buy more into the system. You want to make sure that whatever assumptions you're making going forward are, are reasonable. And in terms of a defined contribution system, you actually want to give your employees um, access to their private property. When you invest your money in a defined benefit system, say you decide to leave early or you don't retire um, the full term of your uh, career, uh, if you leave the system, you're entitled to take whatever contributions you put in plus a nominal amount of interest, but you don't get whatever the state or city or whatever government contributed in for, for your side, depending on what your agreement was. And so they can basically take that and use that money elsewhere. Now, that may be fine for the pension systems, but in places like Michigan, they were finding that a lot of people would leave the systems and have no access to whatever money they had been promised or had been paid in for them over a period of years. And so states are moving to this place where they will put in a certain amount of money, and if you're in a defined contribution system, you have to fully fund it every year. Whereas in defined benefit, uh, at places like New Jersey or even CalSTRS here in California, they're not paying the full freight, and that compound interest on the expenses and liabilities continues to add up while the assets just aren't there. So, but so whatever reform has to happen has got to take – the onus off of the taxpayer. You have to have more buy-in. It has to be a sustainable program 
And you have to make sure that people understand that this is not a, a get rich scheme, that this is a, uh, you want to be able to sustain somebody's um, lifestyle at probably anywhere from 75 to 80% of what they're making in their career. Now, but what are some of the, um, the, the th- situations you mentioned? What are some of the solutions out there or are they still just finalizing the solutions to fix this problem? Like I said, you can move from a defined contribution to a defined benefit or excuse me, the other way around. You can move from a defined benefit to a defined contribution system where no longer are you adding up the years somebody worked and using some calculation um, and paying it off in later years, you're basically paying into a 401k type system. It's not a 401k, but it's, it's similar where you're investing in somebody's retirement account and whether they manage it or the people themselves, the workers themselves manage it, um, that can all be made up a uh, decision of the pension boards. They will invest over a period of 20 or 30 years. And at the end, have an ability to either get an annuity that goes along with that or do a cash out. In the higher education system for over 100 years, we have Tia Kreff, and most university professors and, and administrators, because they move jobs often and because they want some stability after their, their careers, they use a defined contribution system that's very effective, that has a, a safe rate of return has pooled investments and an annuity aspect at the very end. So there's all ways you can structure these reforms, but in the end, the people that are responsible for those costs are the people themselves. And hopefully they'll get full benefit out of whatever retirement they get in the end. There's other ways too. There's some hybrids where you can do a small defined benefit to make sure there's a base level of guaranteed returns. Again, still guaranteed by the taxpayer, but it's a minimal amount. And then you have a defined contribution system on top of that. Or there's a cash balance plan, which is really it's a it's a low risk defined benefit program that has some different components to it. But there's some challenges there too, as Kentucky is finding out right now as they've experimented with that plan. Now, so we we definitely know that we everybody realizes we have to make changes to the way the system's running right now. But if they don't make the changes that are necessary, how does that impact the state budget? Because if you if you have this pension that you have to pay, that means you can only focus on maybe what twenty percent, twenty five percent of the, any any budget of any given city or state to to make up your shortfall. Yeah, well, it uh, constricts the ability for you to make sensible payments for other services and you'll continue to pay higher and higher costs for your retirement uh, plans and programs. So the question a lot of cities and states have to ask is one, do we need such a big and and robust work um, workforce? So there's a lot of people looking at that. One of the places the courts um, have been a little more lenient in is not taking away people's pension benefits, but if a city decides that they no longer can afford the benefit, unless they can negotiate lower terms on the pension benefit, they often have the ability just to reduce the pay, which for a defined benefit system impacts their 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 costs. And so um, they can do that, or some cities have just flat out uh, laid people off because they can't make the payments. And that's not what we want to see. We want to make sure that whatever we're doing out there is fair and equitable, that people get the paycheck um, in the mail when they retire, after they retire. 
uh, in Detroit, a lot of them took haircuts. You have cities in Alabama and, and Rhode Island where they literally cut their pension, their defined benefit promised pension by half. Um, so it's possible out there that people could lose everything. And that's not what you want. And a city wants to make sure it can provide its services for which it exists, but it also wants to make sure it takes care of its citizens as well that, that worked for them for so long. Now, we've also seen like Detroit, and I know there was San Bernardino in California and Stockton, and I believe Vallejo a few years back. Various cities have entered into bankruptcy. What legal ramifications does this place on a city or municipality, and can they file for bankruptcy? Bankruptcy, as you know, is a very long and arduous process, and it requires a lot of time and uh, resources to do. So large cities, um, larger cities, uh, may make that um, decision based upon opportunity costs or they want to pursue such a strategy. And so if you're spending anywhere from 20, 30, 40 million dollars to go through bankruptcy over a period of years, um, you're hoping that you can get out of a substantial sum of money. So you probably have to have debt obligations that exceed whatever you're willing to pay for the bankruptcy process. Um, there are places where this is acceptable and Chicago may be in that process at some time. I don't know. They have substantial liabilities across the board and the courts have really restricted them there but a lot of little cities don't really have that option or expertise to go through the bankruptcy process so they themselves are going to either suffer um try to raise taxes uh in a in a way locally um get revenue from other sources or just simply uh, cut out whatever services they're providing and that may be um, a way that they can get around the costs but it also impacts the quality of life for the residents of that you know, state or city. Now, we focused on the cities and municipalities, but you mentioned Chicago, and I know I've always mentioned Illinois. Illinois is really not doing all that well financially because of these unfunded pension obligations. And the courts have said that they have to pay this. So can a state file bankruptcy? No. Or is that... They so can't. So a state is... Yeah, I mean, not at all. I don't think we've really, it's ever really been tested, but I think the consensus out there, at least a large agreement with most legal scholarship, is states can't file bankruptcy. So the question is whether the federal government will come in and, and give some sort of relief. And we've seen in the past when New York City had huge problems during the, uh, the, the Ford administration that he basically told them no and you got to figure it out. I think the same would happen with a lot of states. There's also been changes in the rules, too, about uh, how we account for our assets and liabilities. Uh, GASB 68 or 67 and 68, the, the rules from the, the governing body for governmental, uh, governmentally administrative, uh, administrative pension systems um, that require a, a more honest look at the costs of these pensions. And now that a lot of states are looking at their balance sheets and saying, oh, boy, we have a huge and substantial problem, bigger than we thought it was. Um, there may be a little panic uh, in the next several months as they look at that liability. The Pew Foundation just put out an excellent uh, report outlining all of the liabilities from the 2013 era. Uh, 2014 numbers are still kind of soft out there, but 2013, they showed that, that all the states combined have a $968 billion shortfall. And that's not counting your local governments, which is well over a trillion dollars. Uh, there was a report this morning the Federal Reserve sees that problem about $1.4 billion. So these are big numbers. And no matter whether it's – I said billion, I meant trillion. Whether or not it's you know $1 trillion, 
two trillion, three trillion, four trillion, that's real money. And that's money that can't go to other services. That's other money that can't go to educating our kids, paving our roads, taking care of our um, uh, public safety. And unless these states figure out how to deal with that, the federal government's not going to come in and be able to save them. The federal government has their own problems. And so there's going to so be a dramatic shift in, I think, how we approach this pension stuff. So basically, because of this trillions of dollars of unfunded pension, it is impacting the economies of the various states then. Yes. Because you're talking about reducing services. That means you can't spend on highways, roads, and bridges and all that stuff because you can cut that, but you can't cut this other thing. So that's going to create people not having jobs or not the infrastructure of a state impacts the economy. Right. And if you're not building roads or infrastructure, energy, um, pipelines, all those kinds of things, what business wants to invest in your state? They'll go Correct. elsewhere where these things are under control. Now, you mentioned this earlier. I just want to get more, more of your insight on this, Lance. Is um, What role does the Federal Reserve and or Wall Street play in this crisis? Because you got to fund these bonds and these expenditures somewhere. And investment. So what role do those two institutions have? Well, I'm no finance expert, but what I see is they exist to move money and move it to different investments. And for large segments of the economy, we depend on um, Wall Street and other places that make these investments to help us uh, put money where the most innovative and successful things are. I think that's a good thing. Um, the problem is when we overdepend on them to get rates of return that just um, in a normal course of investing are not consistent or able to occur over a period of years. And it has become, I think, for a lot of people, an easy place to place blame is on Wall Street or greedy bankers, whatever the case may be, I think. Uh, are there bad actors out there? There's bad actors in every field, but there's bad actors in the government sector that promise benefits they couldn't keep. There's bad actors in um, some of these negotiations where people promised benefits that they knew they couldn't keep. There's bad actors that spike their pay. So across the board, I think the blame goes to a lot of people. So we've got to step back and say, okay, we want to make sure we provide for people, but we have got to be commonsensical whatever fiscal or finance policy out there, Wall Street or the Federal Reserve, it has to be consistent with whatever the economy can handle. If the economy can't handle these really um, rich or, or big benefit systems, then we have to decide what's the right amount for all of that and then what are the taxpayers willing to pay if it doesn't come to fruition. Well, no, you make a good point because the reason I mentioned Wall Street, if let's say a given state, let's just take Illinois because we all know that's really financial and dire straits. If they want to pass a bond and they're already can't afford to pay what they have, wouldn't Wall Street charge them a much higher interest rate on that bond because they have to be the ability to pay that back? Sure. So if you're a municipality that's not been able to take care of your, your debt, then that's a problem. Stockton's actually a really good example of that where for years they had been in litigation with different bond um, uh, uh bond insurers and bond providers because they weren't willing to pay um, the full freight there. Part of that was they had been compelled by CalPERS to pay 100% of their costs, and yet the the bond, those with bonds, the municipal bond market, got literally pennies on the dollar. So whether or not uh, the bond 
guys deserve that. It's one question. I mean, people can debate that all long, all day long. Their, their ability to make strategic decisions and uh, have some sort of analysis on their end to make sure that they can get their money out. Well, that's all part of the market. But the other part is, why would you want to go in and invest in a city that's proven it's not one to keep its obligations? And I think that's going to be the bigger driver for a lot of the investing in these different places. If you're a city that needs money to pave roads or to, you know, do redo your sewer systems or you know improve your your infrastructure or, or put money in your school systems, but you in the past have proven that you're not worthy of paying back your debts, where are you going to get that money? Who's going to put that money into your 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 community to really make it a better place? And I think Stockton is now going to see um, how that plays out. Who's going to be willing to invest? their money into Stockton to make sure it's a better place to live. And I feel bad for the people of Stockton. I really do. Um, but at some level, we've got to change the system where we're not making these false choices where people can get the benefits they were promised, also have the services they have, but maybe it's not as rich as they once were. Now, but how would that impact? Like I know USA Today a couple of weeks ago came out with a report, looked at the fiscal stability of each state and a few states did really well, but why would bondholders, wouldn't they charge a higher interest rates even to the to cities or states, even though they paid their obligations, but they're going to be paying for the excesses of other states? That's, po- that aff- that's possible. Remember, we have thousands, tens of thousands of municipal jurisdictions throughout the state, uh, throughout the United States. So that discussion, I think, happens when there's a critical point. Now, we may be approaching that. Um, I don't think we have, and because um, a lot of this money is is fluid, they have the ability to move their money to places where it's still relatively safe, and there are states that are making good decisions um, about their finances. I think one of the, the best reports, if people want to look at it, is the Mercatus Center from George Mason University just had a report on the fiscal health of 50 states. And uh, Eileen Norcross, who ran the study, did an excellent job of just looking through all these different indicators, and you know, uh, again, something that these bond markets are going to be aware of is whether cities have the ability within the confines of their law and uh, within the obligations they've promised for their pensions to pay off whatever debts they have in the future for other needs like infrastructure. Well, the reason I was asking that question, because I moved, um, obviously, you know, I moved from California to Florida. And that's one thing I keep asking the lawmakers out here. What is the fiscal stability of the Florida pension system? to make sure we're not over-promising our, you know, to the public employees without any ability to pay. I just don't want them to get into the same situation California and other states gotten into. Well, a few years ago, the speaker there, Will Weatherford, had made pension reform his key, um, key policy. And uh, in the end, they moved for reform, and it was held up on the Senate by a few actually Republicans who decided they weren't going to move his bill forward. And so pension reform in Florida, at least at the statewide level, failed. Now, at the city level, uh, city and municipal level, they're doing a lot of really good things out there. Florida Tax Watch has had a very vigorous program with Reason Foundation to make these things happen. And um, you're seeing a lot of cities actually in Florida that made the jump, that made the change years ago and are more healthy because of it. Yeah, and that's... That's what I'm keep hoping that they do. I know USA Today, in their little in their article, rated Florida as the fifth fiscally sound state. So at least they're hopefully doing good things and making sure we don't do that. 
But yeah. now here's the one you keep always hearing about is the unfunded mandates that the federal government wants to place on the states. Like I know the health care law through the Affordable Care Act was predicated on the states setting up their own exchanges, but a lot of states didn't want to do that for the simple reason, maybe had some political reasons, but some of them didn't want to do it because they knew that at some point the federal government would stop its funding and they would be stuck with the, the bill. Is that impacting the state finances as well, these unfunded mandates? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it usually starts at the top and trickles down. So wherever the federal government puts these mandates on the states, um, the states will either be able to pay them or not, and then they'll pass their unfunded mandates down to the cities. And really the buck kind of stops there because either they pay for them there with uh, whatever money they have or whatever money they may or may not get from the state or the federal government, or they just reduce services. So uh, really we're, we're kind of entering this place to where my children, um, and I have four of them, will not get all the services and programs that I received simply because we're paying outrageous pension costs based upon decisions of years of overpromising and underfunding. Well, and, and that goes to this one question I always had. I wrote a paper on my master's program back in 2010, and I mentioned this about the unfunded pension obligations. And you're talking, this was five years ago. Why haven't we heard anything about this? You get it in some of these reports, like you mentioned the Manhattan Institute, the Reason Foundation. Why isn't this big news? Well, I think it's big news for a lot of the uh, smaller government entities that have this as a reality. Um, I wonder if it's not bigger news for a lot of states because people just don't know. And so I'm hoping the new changes in the, the GASB rules will uh, provide for more transparency, that people will ask their elected officials why they're not fully funding the systems, why they're paying the full cost every year, and why they're over-promising on the benefits. Now, with the t now, finally, for the last part of this, is the 2016 president election, presidential election is underway. Now, I know some of this is state issues, but when you talk about unfunded pension, I mean, unfunded uh, mandates, we have the Affordable Care Act, but now they're talking about, I know Bernie Sanders talking about free education for everybody. Are we going to be hearing more about this to see how this impacts the states, or is this strictly a state issue only and the federal government's not really going to address this, especially the presidential candidates? It just depends on how much of a crisis it becomes, right? So if this is something where several states blow up beyond your usual suspects, then perhaps this is a discussion that, that enters into the political fray on the presidential level. But I'm afraid that uh, it's really going to have to be the states and the cities to grapple with this. And hopefully uh, legislators and governors will be more honest about the problem. They'll be willing to challenge and address it, and they'll take it on and, and have sensible reforms to make sure they can pay the promises they've, they've uh, been giving out for the last 30, 40 years. No, so so what can the what can citizens do about this? I mean, challenge their elected officials more to see how are you going to be addressing the shortfall of our um, our infrastructure and our services? Absolutely, I think there's a lot of things that you can do. One, you can figure out uh, what your problem is. I think a lot of people have spent some time looking through um, the reports from their either the city or the state, their CAFRs, 
Um, CAFR is your basically your accounting report every year for how the city or state is doing it. And look at the numbers on the infant liabilities. Uh, research a little bit. Talk to other people who are smart on these issues, um, people that may have some experience. Once you do that, think about options out there for reform and present those to your elected officials. See if they're willing to move forward and, and actually discuss or engage in a reform measure. If that doesn't happen, then work with other like-minded either organizations or people. Create um, coalitions that can coalesce and and uh, organize that can put out good options for reform and, and make sure that you build that case. As you engage your local elected officials, I think the best thing is not to demonize them. Many of them that are in office now are not the ones that made the promises before. I think generally most elected officials are willing to, to talk about some reforms. Give them the benefit of the doubt, also give them the right information and make sure that you engage them in a way where they can move forward with action and have the opportunity to uh, uh, do something positive, but all, all this really is, is is it's a cry for more accountability and transparency. Uh, a lot of times we like to talk about waste, fraud, and abuse. That's all fine and good. Um, I would say there's not necessarily a lot of waste. There's not necessarily a lot of um, abuse. There is some, um, but we need to get out there and say, okay, is this a fair system going forward for us and for our families? Are we going to be able to get the services we were promised? Um, or are there abilities for us to change the system in a way that would be good for and sustainable for everybody going forward? And I think it just requires a lot of involvement. So I'm hoping that people stand up to the plate, step up to the plate, and, and really make a change. Well, I mean, because I always tell people, I mean, this is a very complex issue and a complex situation we're in. But I always just tell people, get beyond the campaign rhetoric. And when a candidate, no matter from what party, says something – Ask them, well, how is that sustainable? How are you going to pay for that? How are you going to implement that? And then we probably wouldn't be getting into some of these problems that we're in. Yep, I agree. So we'll just have to see. But I want to thank Lance Christensen for coming on this show. And like we said at the beginning, Lance is an um, expert when it comes to dealing with pension reform and pension issues. He currently works as a senior policy advisor for the California State Senate. And before that, he was the director of the Reason Foundation's Pension Reform Project, dealing with these state and national pension issues. So I'd like to thank Lance for coming on the show. But Thanks, John. Appreciate having me. Anytime. But for my listeners, you can, if you go to Ubaldi Reports, we're going to have more of this, more things that impact your lives so we can make the country and the state and cities that you live in that much better. And if you get a chance... You can buy my book, The New Business Brigade, which is on Amazon, and you can get it at any of the major book retailers. Again, it's called The New Business Brigade, and the premise is why businesses need to hire veterans and the uh, the untapped resource they represent. If you want to go to Ubaldi Reports, just go to Stitcher and iTunes, sign up. It's free. Leave some comments and tell me what you want to hear on Ubaldi Reports, and we'll, we'll continually bring it to you. Again, I'd like to thank Lance for coming on the show. And thanks, Lance, for, ha- for coming on. And thanks, keep- John. Appreciate it. Anytime. And keep listening to Ubaldi Reports.